Let me quote a small section of Ray Martin's words at Darren Hinch's induction into the Australian Media Hall of Fame. Quote, For almost six decades now, Darren Hinch has been a colourful, megaphone campaigning, groundbreaking journalist. He always pursued the story as ambitiously and doggedly as the headline. He has long been amongst the very best tabloid reporters in Australia, a special school that should be recognised and rewarded. He has also consistently been the decent side of public debates. Darren Nigel Hinch truly deserves the accolades. He's a legend of Australian journalism, end quote. Welcome to Your Life Choices podcast with me, John Deeks. Your Life Choices, of course, Australia's longest established and trusted digital platform for the 50 pluses. Now, this podcast is being recorded at Giro Italiana Restaurant in St Kilda Road, Melbourne, thanks to the kind generosity of our host, Dom. Thank you so much indeed for hosting us here today. Thank you, John, for being here. Thank you, Darren, for being here. I hope you enjoy your afternoon. Thank you very much, Dom. That's not a put-on accent. That is the real deal. <laughs> it's a real deal, and he's a great man. Thank you, Dom. And uh, it's fitting we should be talking to our guest today in a restaurant, as in a past life, he too was a restaurateur, <laughs> as well as a puppet, a pauper, a pirate, a poet, a pawn, and a king. He's been up and down, over and out, and he knows one thing. Each time he finds himself flat on his face, he picks himself up and gets back in the race. I've finished my intro. Darren Hinch, <laughs> thank you for joining us. Ah, oh, John, thank you for that. that that the, was a hell uh, of an intro, li- wasn't it? That, yeah, it was. The, 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 the That's Life uh, Frank Sinatra line, which I've used as a theme for a long, long time. Uh, and the Ray Martin words, um, that night was such an honour because what you didn't know was that night I inducted Ray Martin into the Hall of Fame. No, The really? same night. So, And we'd worked against each other, me for Fairfax and him for the ABC in New York back in the uh, in the 70s, 60s and 70s. Yeah. So uh, we go back a long, long way and I was just so proud. A, to be inducted, but B, to have Ray Martin do it was fantastic. And, and I went on the site. And we both have a, our own hair. That's the <laughs> other big thing, despite what they may say. Yeah, boy, oh boy, didn't Bert Newton hate that? Because when I was at 3UZ and yeah. you started at 3AW, yeah. you came in like a cyclone saying, and I'm going to beat Bert Newton. And uh, Bert was uh, very, very uh, antsy about all of that. And we uh, many of us secretly said, Go, Darren. Good on you. Go for it. The weirdest thing was that um, when I was in Sydney coming to Melbourne, most people knew I was coming down here, they said, whatever you do, Bernard King said to me, whatever you do, Darren, don't attack or criticise Bert Newton because <laughs> Bert Newton is a god in Melbourne. Right? That would have been a red rag to a bull for you. Yeah, so I came to Melbourne and I went and, and did an interview with the Sunday Press, I think it was, That's with right. Jack yes. Cannon. Yes. And I said... Bert Newton is a myth invented by the Reader's Digest. Oh, yes, boy, and, oh boy. And, and the thing was, the weirdest thing was, it was probably cleverer than I thought, he was number one. Yep. I was number ten. Yep. And as soon as I attacked Bert, number two to number eight were ignored. You know, they, <laughs> I mean, people like Dennis Scanlon and all those other people on radio, they didn't get a look at it. It was suddenly Hinch versus Newton, Newton versus Hinch. Hinch says this about Newton, Newton says this about Hinch. And I mean, that's what happened for, for the next year. And it took me a year to beat him, a year and a half, but uh, we, we got him in the you, end. You got there and uh, stayed there for many, 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 many years. The, the, the fight, the inspiration, the drive that you've got, has that always been in you and from whence did it come? Look, I used to do instructions for and speeches to young journos, especially at the age and places like that. Yeah. And I remember the one thing I'd say to them, keep the fire in your belly. That's the most important thing. Keep the fire in your belly because if you don't have it, get out. 
you've, you've got to have passion. You've got to believe. Even when I was a senator, I, I didn't do things I didn't believe in. You know, yeah. I, uh, even when somebody was against government policy or against Labor Party, I'd, you, you, you do what you think is right. I guess I always had that drive and the passion. I mean, look, in, in my book, in Coping, the book. Yeah, um, which we're going to talk about yeah, while but, we're here but, today. Uh, the, it's, it's a little thing. My grandma, Sarah Elizabeth Hinch, who was born in 1888. Yeah. When I was a young kid... Is I this in New Zealand? In New Zealand. In New Plymouth? Yeah, in New Plymouth. Well, she lived in a little town called Opanaki. Uh-huh. And yeah. uh, she was English and she and her husband came out from England when, uh, when they were young. She said to me, Darren, it's not what happens to you in life that matters. It's how you handle it. Mm. How you cope. Yeah. And I guess that stuck with me. And that was the, the germ. That was the, the reason why I actually wrote the book Coping, because not what happens to you. A lot of shit happens to us. A lot of yeah. bad stuff happens yeah. to everybody. Yeah. And, uh, and it's how and everybody's you carrying something on yeah. their shoulders, and as aren't you they? Co- I mean, uh, the book I talk about how you handle life in general, how you handle grief, how you handle um, serious illness, how you handle heartbreak, how you handle unemployment. And I've been there and, and done, been that. done all that. So <laughs> all uh, that. You, you are somewhat experienced, and, and we're going to delve further into the book. But you haven't answered my question: okay. Where did the fire come from? Parents? Was it your? Was it your grandmother? I mean, no, not really. I mean, because I mean, you my, have something that is something else again. Well, I mean, my my mother, I guess, was a matriarch. Uh, my dad was fairly soft, and uh, mum ran the family. But I don't know where it came from. I, I do know that. Was your brother the same? No. Totally opposite. He was bald at 29, got acne at 16. <laughs> Everything he and I, he and I are different. But he's very successful as a, as a teacher. But I guess I've always worked on the basis of you never give up. You know, um, mm. when I when I went broke and I call it my nadir, and that was when I, I went broke and I was, I'd lost my house in Turak. I was living at my farm at, at Mount Macedon. Yes. Um, I went down to the, the ATM at Wood End. And I had $6.49 in my ATM. Oh. And it was no good to me because you have to, I think minimum withdrawal is $20. Uh, but that was, the, that was the bottom line. And I always thought, I'll come back from this. I can do this again. I've still got talent. And for a year at the farm, I lived on two-minute noodle soup every night. That was my dinner every night. And uh, having owned a vineyard, I was drinking cask wine because yeah. that's all I could afford. Yeah. But you do come back. You do come back. You've just got to believe in what you can do. I mean, in, in the book, a quote on the back of the book, which, I, which I've lived by, I said something like, the best advice I can give you about life or your work or your job or your career is never take a step back because somebody will step on you. Ah, and Never take a step back because someone will step on you. And that happens. Keep, keep moving forward. Yes, because if you, if you do, if, if you surrender, put up the white flag, somebody's going to take it from you and you're not going to come back. So that's, that's the way I think. Just a side issue too, when you were in Mount Macedon and yeah. uh, you were at the lowest of the low, and as far as, you know, um, did you find suddenly uh, you found out who your real friends were? No. Um, my dad, when, when I, I had millions of dollars once and... Well, you used to fly to Hawaii yeah, at the yeah. weekend. You'd always have right. your passport in your ba- in your bag as you come into work. <laughs> that is true. Into three AW, then you just duck off to the airport well, and go. Well, I, I owned a house in Turak. I owned two houses in Hawaii. I owned a farm. But my dad said to me once, "Oh, I bet now you're broke. Uh, all your so-called friends have left you because he would be there when I'd pick up a big tab at, at lunch." Yeah. And I said, "No, the friends I had when I had money, are the friends I had when I was broke." are the same friends, few friends I still have now that I've got money again. 
Wow. So I've, I've the same bunch of friends. I mean, you, you never have more than really, if you're being honest, mm. four or five really good friends. And heaps of acquaintances, of course. Yeah, yeah. I mean, I had 600 uh, friends of my closest, best and closest to my <laughs> 40th birthday at the Underground in Melbourne. So uh, 600 at my 40th. I had 60 at my 60th. So I burned off, um, <laughs> I burned off 540 over, over 10 years. But there we are. Uh, it's just remarkable considering you've come so close to, to death um, mm. with your as we all know, when you had cirrhosis and... Um, oh, and, and cancer. And, and, oh, well, cirrhosis nearly took me out the first time. Oh, gee, you just don't do things by halves, do no, you? No, no. Cirrhosis yeah, was 2006. I nearly carked it then. Um, funny story there. I, um, I had what's called the rigors, which I'd never heard of. That's when your teeth actually chatter. Oh, really? It's like, you know, people say, oh, you're so cold, your teeth chatter. Yeah. When you have the rigors, your teeth, you can't stop them, they are chattering. I was sitting in my apartment with a leather jacket on and a dressing gown and still couldn't stop my teeth chattering. Oh, dear. So I went to the doctor and they immediately called an ambulance. They figured I had septicemia, which I thought was a medieval disease. I don't yeah. think people got it anymore. Yeah. And they called an ambulance and the ambulance is taking me to the hospital. And, and uh, I said, well, you're going to uh, Cabrini. They said, no, it's on uh, bypass. We're going to Box Hill. Oh, blimey. right eh? <laughs> And even though I was feeling very sick, I thought, the journo in me kicked in. I said, I'm not going to Box Hill. <laughs> so I said, pull over here in St Kilda Road. <laughs> yes. Called my limo driver. Yes. He came and picked me up out of the ambulance and put me in the limo. Right. Because I knew that if you go to a hospital present an emergency, they can't turn you away. I bet you went to the Alfred. Uh, no, I went to Cabrini. Oh, you went to Cabrini? Yeah, this is where oh, I wanted I see, to go. I see. Oh, yeah, gotcha. this is where I wanted to go in the first place. So, oh, wow. and ironically, they, they put me in the maternity ward. It's just, ironically, <laughs> I've been in the maternity ward at Cabrini twice, and I'm probably the only person who's never had a child, never had a baby, but I've been in the maternity ward at Cabrini twice in my life. Um, but that, that, that was it. You know? So, on that occasion, my wife, Chanel, said, um, Do you know they had seven doctors working on you last night? And I said, no, but I'll find out. So I, I talked to my main doctor the next day. I said, is that true? He said, yeah. I said, isn't that a lot? He said, well, we thought we'd lost you. Oh, no. And I said, well, seven, ten, cue the elephants. I mean, I don't, yeah, <laughs> I don't boy, mind. Boy. So, so I've, I've come close. And then after my transplant, uh, Bob Jones, Professor Bob Jones, who's my surgeon, I was interviewing for, my, for a book, and he said, you know you actually died on the operating table. Dear and I said, what, you mean I had a heart attack? He said, no, your heart stopped. I said, well, does that mean you just started it? He said, no, it means you're dead. And I said, oh, anyway, they managed to get it going. Did you see any light? No, nothing like that. No, no. no I'm, I'm an atheist, so I didn't expect to see anything. How many books have you written, Darren Hinch? Uh, 16. Okay, 16 <laughs> books. And the one that has just been released is called Coping, which mm. is the, the catalyst for us speaking to you today. And as you know... Um, oh, you just want to talk. Uh, no, well, look, mate, we could talk for hours and hours about the anecdotes uh, and... But coping about life, illness, grief, heartbreak and unemployment, as you said, uh, it, it's almost a, a life story uh, of Darren Hinch. But who did you draw the inspiration from? Did you speak to people or was it all your own personal anecdotes driven from within? Mainly from within, mainly um, anecdotal from uh, life experiences. I mean, uh, speaking about grief, my sister, Barbara, yeah. Her youngest son, Rodney, was shot dead when he was 16 oh in, in a rabbit shooting accident on the farm. Oh, dear. And, and was killed by, uh, shot accidentally, by my namesake. His name was Darren. Oh. Uh, and 
I was amazed by the resilience of my sister and her husband, Les, how they handle it. Now, they're religious, or she is, and they, they handle it very well. I mean, suddenly your 16-year-old son is dead. And one thing came out of that. At, at the day of his funeral, his older brother, Peter, his partner gave birth on the day of the funeral. Oh. And to me, it was like there is a season, turn, turn, you know, Tur- and, and circle. Life, yeah. life goes on. And uh, even with the worst of times, good stuff develops and comes out of it and I guess that was part of it so that was the grief part of it the unemployment thing well I've been sacked 16 times so I could handle that one yeah uh, with, with but experience. employed about 25 yeah that's that's that's, that's true <laughs> I think you're still ahead of the game oh, I'm probably am I probably yeah. am and uh, other things like I mean I've had a lot of heartbreak I've, I've broken hearts and I've had my heart absolutely shattered by by women you know yeah including you, including a, a beautiful young lady who broke my heart and who's with me now Oh, isn't that lovely? Linda Stoner. Oh, how is she? She's wonderful. She, I used to see her at Channel 7 all the time yeah, when she was in Cop Shop, Shop and right. all the rest. Well, well, um, Linda. Wonderful heart. Oh, big heart. She still, she still runs Animal Liberation God out of her. Sydney. And, oh. uh, yeah, so it's wonderful to go back to be together again more than 30 years later. is quite bizarre, but wonderful. Let's go through life. Mm. Uh, tell me about the chapter of life. Chapter of life, oh, it sounds corny, just live it. I mean, yeah. it's there. It's there as long as you've got it. I mean, I, I was reading about um, poor old John O'Coleman, who, who yes, died recently. You recently. Know, one of the funniest, big-hearted, lovely men mm. who I, I didn't know how sick he was. He was, still, he was still very bravely appearing on Studio 10 yeah. when he was obviously very ill. He's, been, yeah. he's had prostate cancer for like four years. Yeah. So, you know, you never know when it's going to hit you. You never know when it's going to come at you. So just live it to the fullest. Well, we've, we've spoken about this uh, just in the lift and in the, uh, in the foyer of our apartment, uh, talking about the amount of folks that we know. And recently when uh, Mr. Peacock passed away mm. and you said, gee, the first time I met him was in New York at, yeah. uh, at, at a press thing. Was it the UN? Ironically, no. It was um, Andrew Peacock and I first met at the National Press Club in Washington. In Washington. And he was okay. there, and I was having a drink with him, and Peter Costigan, who was the... Uh, yeah, he used to be mayor uh, here, course, ...and became yeah. Lord Mayor of Melbourne. Yeah. He, at the time, he was a, a foreign correspondent. So we were there, and a guy called Ross Mark, who was an Australian journo, who was the dean of the Washington Press Corps. And uh, he was there, and so it was a pretty reasonable lineup. Yeah, sure. And Andrew and I then became became friends. He was best man at my wedding to Jackie Weaver. Right. Uh, I convinced him to marry Margaret, his his wife, yeah. at one stage. His death really hit me in a funny way because, mm. I mean, we've been around death and, and friends who have died over the years and Peter Costigan died some years ago. Yeah. But Andrew's death really hit me because we'd been casually talking about my doing a, um, a one-hour doco on him for, for Sky. Mm. And, uh, and suddenly, for some reason, I, it really made me think about things about uh, you know that I mean I haven't got that much longer here I when I had my transplant I thought the average life with a transplant seven years of a liver transplant well, I thought it's been I, longer than that well it's been it? 10 it was yeah. 10 years in July yeah uh, I think that I'll um I now think I'll last another 15 yeah, uh, and if I hadn't had the transplant I wouldn't have become a senator mm. I wouldn't have done a lot of things um and I wouldn't have written this book and I'm, I'm 40,000 words into my next one. So. Oh, really? <laughs> oh. Now, the noise you hear behind us, yeah. folks, just so you know, we are in a beautiful restaurant called... Uh Giro d'Italia. That's right. And Dom is over there. Making are you, coffee. Oh, yeah, Dom? Very noisily. Ciao, Dom. Okay, so... Yeah, we're going well. Thank you. So uh, that's some of the noise you hear of this wonderful restaurant that uh, is just uh, near where, uh, where Darren I'll and I I'll tell you I what, live. one of the reasons why I support this place. Oh, poor Dom. Dom? Dom? 
signed the lease and opened this restaurant <laughs> the day before the big lockdown in Melbourne yeah, last yeah, year. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So instead of opening his wonderful Italian restaurant, he's doing a bit of takeaway food and some coffee for five months. And so he did it hard, like so yeah, many others. Some others. Well, I think but doing it hard. My local dry cleaner behind me in the where you live now. Yeah, yeah, yeah. He's been there 19 years. He's closing up this month. Oh, no. He yeah. does the alterations as well. Yeah. Yeah, I, I go there. Well, you better get it quick. You get your trousers shortened because oh. uh, he's closing down. Because, well, see, with COVID, it's changed a lot of people's lives. It's ruined a lot of businesses, closed down a lot of family restaurants. And people talk about post-COVID, it's going to be... Life will never come back to what it was, yeah. I can tell you. Yeah. I'll tell you why. It will be different. I'll give you some examples. The ripple effect. In the city, say, in the in Melbourne CBD, a CEO uh, rents an a, a, a office block for $100,000 a year. He thinks, hey, I could let my staff work from home and get one for $20,000 a year. So that's that. If you own a car parking station, fewer people are going to come and park in your car park. That'll hurt you. If you own, I'm making these numbers up now, but if you own, say, a salad shop in Collins Street and you've had 5,000 people a day come past your salad shop, suddenly it's going to be 1,000 people a day. Instead of selling 100 chicken wraps, you're going to sell 20. People working from home, you're not getting your suits cleaned as much. You're not getting your shirts done as much. So, therefore, you're in your tracking decks. The ripple effect is going to be... Amazing for a long, long time. Coping is the book that uh, Darren Hinch has just uh, produced, and uh, it's uh, number 18 or 17? 16. Number 16, <laughs> and number 17 is half written. Yeah. Uh, Coping is the name of it, uh, and it's t- about life, illness, grief, heartbreak, unemployment. We've covered life, illness, of course, uh, you, from very personal experience, we've spoken of. How do you handle grief? People handle it totally differently. And you have to accept that and understand that. Some people can handle it and move on with their life. And I mentioned the fact that we had a baby born the day my nephew died. But there are people who handle it differently. Some people don't handle it well at all. Some people will grieve for years. Some will grieve forever. Some will get involved like uh, Bruce and and, uh, Denise Morecambe, whose son was was raped and murdered. They will start the the Morecambe Foundation and try and educate kids and, 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 and... keep them away from from troublesome situations. Um, Some people, and I don't know if this is right or wrong, um, they will keep their child's bedroom the way it was when they died. Uh, And I can understand it to a degree because I know when I've gone and stayed with my sister, I stay in Rodney's room. uh, And they've still got his football boots there and his football jersey from 30 years ago. That may be their way through it. I'm sure some psychologists would say, that's wrong, you've got to move on, you don't need that reminder. In the Morecambe's case, uh, I didn't know for a long time, and I'm, I'm an ambassador for the Morecambe Foundation, I didn't know that, that he had a, a twin brother, and that must make it even harder because the twin brother has now had a baby. And wouldn't you think, oh, my other son would have been the same. Why now. was it him? Why yeah, wasn't it me? Yeah, well, my, yeah. My, 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 my son who died... Um, he would be able to be this age. Yeah. He could have been married. It, it's a, it's a daily, almost a daily reminder. So, I mean, we, we, all, we all judged the Chamberlains yes. when Azaria died, you know, because they didn't handle the way that she died well by our, our standards. And you learn that you, you, have, to, you have to be more tolerant than I f- we are. I, I feel terrible about that because I joined the, the mob. And no, thought, I, believe oh. she, I believe she did it. Oh, yeah, you must have done yeah, it. Yeah, yeah, she must have done it. And, of course, uh, as, as history has shown, it was nothing like that at all. Grief and heartbreak, uh, it's a fine line. 
Heartbreak is usually over a broken romance, a broken marriage or whatever. Grief is when you lose somebody so close mm. and they've gone irrevocably forever. Uh, with, with, with heartbreaks, I've mentioned it's a great diet. You throw yourself into your work uh, and you, you, you should know that you will get over it. I mean, I read cases going back, you know, and it's so sad when a 16-year-old girl commits suicide over, over a teenage boy. If she'd lived to 20, she'd look back and say, what did I ever see in him? You know, if she'd lived. Um, so that sort of, that sort of grief is, is, is just impossible to understand. It is. It is. Uh, unemployment. Now, uh, because the Your Life Choices audience is uh, 50, 60 plus, mm. a lot of the, uh, the folks who are listening to this have, um, have been made unemployed, mm. are unemployed, uh, and a lot of them would like to remain employed. Have you handled the times when you've been unemployed? Well, let me tell you a story, especially speaking of the age group. I was in New York and I was the Bureau Chief for Fairfax. Yep. And uh, I was always lying about my age and adding years to it to sound more experienced. And uh, I was offered a job to come back as Deputy Editor of the Sun newspaper in Sydney. And I was talking to a, a journo friend of mine from LA, Ivor Davis, he's a Hollywood correspondent, and he did some work for me. And he said, Darren, are you going to take it? I said, I don't know. He said, well, remember the shaving mirror test? And I said, what's huh? that? He said, every day when you have a shave, you look in the mirror, if you don't take it, you'll be wondering, I wonder if I could have done it. Huh. I wonder if I could have done it. So I, on that advice, I took it. I came back to Australia, having had 11, 12 years in New York. I told the bosses two things. I said, I want my own office. I was deputy editor. They had to build me one. Yeah. And they did. And I said, if I'm not editor in uh, six months, I'll quit. <laughs> How did the present editor feel about that? Uh, I don't think he felt very good because I was edited within six weeks. Right. <laughs> uh, this sounds very, a very Darren Hinch story, actually. Yeah, well, it? And, and, and I was within six weeks, I was the editor. Shine and retiring Darren Hinch. <laughs> <laughs> Not. Well, again, you believe, it, you believe in yeah. your talent. You yeah. believe in what you can do. I mean, I was a bureau chief for an international group called United Press International yeah, UPI, in, yeah. in Canada. I was 22. And I was, I was interviewing people like Marshall McLuhan for Time magazine, having articles published in the New York Times. And you, you think, I mean, I quit school at 15. I didn't know what a high school dropout was until I went to America and discovered that I was one. Wow. Yeah. Yet again, you know, kids who go to journalism school and all the rest, you can have all of the qualifications, but unless you've got the heart, unless you've got the stomach, unless you've got the drive, honest to goodness, it's... Listen, it's, they, they could write a thesis. Now, this, I'm biased. I didn't go to university. I know. They could write neither. a thesis... But they wouldn't know a page one story if it bit them on the bum. You yeah. know, um, yeah. you got to think: Why am I writing this? Mm. What will interest people? You know, yeah. my first wife Lana was a journo. Mm. Uh, she became women's editor of the Melbourne Herald and then became editor of the Women's Weekly. But Lana and I were in New York, and she'd be struggling over a story, and I'd say, "Why? I'm having trouble with the lead." I said, "Why?" She said, well, "I don't know what to say." I said, "Well, what are you writing about?" She said, "I'm writing about the success story." Of, you know, of, of a one-legged man who climbed Mount Everest. So this is your intro. This is the story of a one-legged man who climbed Mount Everest. Yeah. It's, it's, the obvious is there. Just <laughs> of go course. for it. Yeah. Uh, before we wrap this up, Justice Party is back on um, on the on the boil. And yeah. uh, I noticed... Uh, Never went off the boil. No, went off the boil. But uh, notice you've got your, 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 your car running around now with uh, the Justice Party on the side. Yeah. Uh, tell me about your time in politics. Okay. I'll tell you two things. One, the Justice Party. I'm running for the Senate again. It's going to be a very tough campaign. We've got... Uh, we don't have much money, so we've got my... Um, 
my billboard on wheels with a, a, a Which sign on the side. you took around Victoria, something like oh, 1,700 Ks or something incredible. Yeah, yeah. No, we did. Last time we did 9,000 Ks oh. around Victoria. We'll do it again this election. Uh, it says on the side, who's looking after the children, Hinch. Yeah. And I've got, we've still got two members of the state parliament in Victoria. And they're up for re-election next, end of next year. We got three elected, but one went rogue, so I had to sack her. Yeah. Uh, we've got two there now. I'm running again. Um, I've still got my last book was called Unfinished Business. I think there is still unfinished business, yeah. which I really, really want to do. I was so honoured to be in the Senate. I can tell you this. It was one of the great moments of my life because when you get elected senator, they give you a little gold medallion, which I carried every day and every night in my suit pocket or my jeans pocket on weekends because I was so honoured to be a senator. What's the medallion say? It's a, it's a senate emblem. Okay. And, a, and you get a little button for your lapel saying yeah. you are a senator, shows you're a senator. But I carried it every day because only 700 people have ever been elected senator in Australia. Wow. Now, that's about the same number who've worn the baggy green. Mm. And that's what made me so honoured to be there. And... Uh, and, and what I, was your I, reception like when you went into to Canberra? Did they go, oh, God, here comes the human headline, look out? No, they were pretty good. Yeah? They were actually pretty good. Uh, I got on very well with, um, with both sides, with Labor and, and the Libs. They learned very quickly that if I said I'm going to vote this way, I couldn't be bought and I wasn't going to trade or yeah. do horse trading and stuff yeah. like that. Yeah. Uh, I learned from Matthias Corman that the word, um, you know, you've got to sometimes, you know, do stuff, you know, bend a little bit, you yeah. know. Yeah. Um, but I, 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 I loved it. Uh, I loved being... I mean, you can be outside Parliament, as I was for all those years, yeah. campaigning and shouting and saying the government must do this, the government must do that. But when you're in there, you have a chance to, to try and do it. You, know? yeah. you, you don't win them all. Yeah. You, uh, the word I think Matthias Coleman used was compromise, yeah. and sometimes you do have to, but, but you, you can win. I mean, we, we, got, we got the, uh, the rape thing up, uh, anti-rape travel for, yeah. for, for pedophiles. Do you sense uh, anger in the community when it comes to uh, sentencing and, and justice still? Do oh, you... oh, sure. I mean, and, and, and understandably. Understandably. I, I mean, mean, apart from we... the anger of COVID, and that is something that, you know, no, we look, can't do. Go, John, back up here. The, um, the way our court system works, as somebody once told me, it's a legal system. It's not a justice system. Yeah. And that's the truth. And, and this is one of the things that drives the Justice Party is magistrates and judges spend too much time and too much effort and too much sympathy with the, with the offenders and not the victims. I mean, the victims come last. And that's not the way it should be. The parole board it makes awful mistakes. The, the, the worst things happening in this, in this state especially, and it happens in South Australia as well, a few years ago, you'd hear of a crime being committed like the Burke Street Massacre, mm. and you'd say, I wonder if he's on bail. <laughs> yeah. Now you say, I bet he was on bail. Yeah. That's how things have changed. And, and that's uh, what is wrong. So often that is right. what's wrong. I mean, we, one of our slogans has been jail, not bail. And it sounds cruel, but, you know, it, it has to be. It, it, sometimes it has to be. And the, the problem was we, we have appointed too many judges and magistrates from the Richmond Legal Service and the Fitzroy Legal Service, too many extreme left-wingers. Rob Holes, who was the Attorney General when I was in radio, had much to answer for. And the day he retired, and this is going back, must be 10, 15 years, I said, wait 10 more years before you praise this man. You will rue the day. And we are ruining the day. Darren, uh, talking about jail. Off, off, off the soapbox. No, Sorry. no, no, mate. Um, <laughs> I asked the question, and you're absolutely right. And um, you know, this is not supposed to be a political uh, 
platform, but no. uh, good luck. Mm. I really seriously mean that. Seeing the age group, let me tell you a quick story. Yeah. Um, for years on radio, I used to talk about the old people. And I say the only difference between politicians and old people <laughs> is that old people got there first. Yeah. I always then, remember that. I then, told you that, didn't I? Yeah, I said, then I, I suddenly said, geez, I'm an old person and a politician, so where do I go from here? But I tried when I was in, you know, this is what annoyed me, this is politics. I tried when I was in the Senate to get up nurse and carer ratios in aged care. Mm. I couldn't get the Greens or Labor or the Nationals or the Libs to come anywhere near me. But so, now, so when they all start saying now piously, yes, thanks to the Royal Commission, oh, yes, we need more, more ratios, they wouldn't. Touch me with a 40-foot pole, so just take it with a grain of salt. More power to you, Darren Henshin. More power to this book, Coping. It's a, a brand new book. Now, where do you get it? Well, it's, it's, in, uh, it's in Booktopia. Yep. Uh, you, uh, if you want to write to Hinch at Hinch.net, you can get a $10 discount and buy it oh, there. Oh, hello. What was that? Hinch at Hinch.net. Hinch.net. Hinch at Hinch.net. Hinch at Hinch.net. Yeah, I, think, look, it's, I think it sells for 35 bucks. It's $32 in Booktopia. I can give it to you for 25 It sounds like a JB Hi-Fi commercial. I'm very, very <laughs> proud of that. Coping, life, illness, grief, heartbreak, unemployment. Darren Hinch, I could well, talk to you for you, bloody you, you, hours, You're the king, king of commercials. You can say, buy it now for Hinch. <laughs> buy it now, folks. Uh, you know, at your favourite. No, go to Hinch at Hinch.net and get a $10 discount on Coping, the brand new book. Darren, it's been an absolute honour. Dom. Thank you, neighbour. Where are you, Dom? So, thank you so much for letting us uh, do this interview here at uh, Giro Italiana. In, uh, no problem at all in, in St Kilda Road. It's been a great honour to talk to you, my friend. And, thank you, uh, neighbour. And uh, Thank you. And uh, we'll see you again many, many more times with your next book. Well, let's have another chat. Okay, mate. This has been Your Life Choices with me, John Deeks. Thanks for joining us. See you next time.